Hey, this is Dan Hahn with uh, the Gospel and Race uh, Week 2. Um, we didn't get it recorded last time, so this is kind of the uh, podcast version. Um, kind of started out uh, last week talking a lot about um, kind of establishing the problem. Um, really data-heavy week last week. And um, this time going into... Uh, Going into week three, uh, this, this is more about um, an anecdotal piece, um, talking about kind of my path and kind of working my way backwards from from the beginning. Basically, um, we're talking about uh, I've been really convicted since coming to River Oaks in the in the past few um, past few months in general, um, without a balance my. Um, my social views of the world and and power, privilege, and oppression and those things with the covenant relationships that I'm a part of at church. I think in the um, in the, the the church we often do a bad job. I know that I do of of having those covenant relationships with one another, um, and I do think that we're called to a greater responsibility with one another to to reach out and love because we have taken vows to be part of this body and to and to um kind of sharpen one another as as it is said um and i haven't always done a great job of that and um hopefully that the the rest of this class can be a place where those those covenant relationships shine through um to where people do kind of leave a lot of the baggage that comes with conversations like this behind out of um a, a a sincere love for one another as as covenant members of the church, and so that's that's something that's been um, as I start to talk about my story a little bit more. That's something that's been really powerful for me to remember in conversations like this uh, with people at church in this class in particular. Um, my personal story is one of um, that is probably very similar to a lot of the people that are attending this class and a lot of the people at River Oaks in general. Um, I grew up in a very monochromatic setting. Um, I just was not aware of a lot of racial diversity because I didn't see it. Um, and I think by not seeing that um, growing up that it it established within me kind of a lackadaisical or apathetic approach to interacting with people across lines of difference. And um, it, what, um, what living next to people who are um, different than than me um, has meant since then has been a deeply human experience, and that was something that I was uh, deprived of growing up, which I think was to my detriment. I don't think there's um, after a lot of what Jonathan has said about breaking down some of the the systems of segregation that have existed historically in the church. Um, I don't think there's any um, biblical or human argument to be made for a lack of diversity or for, for segregating people or, or for people growing up within their own, um, even though that, that argument is very much still alive, as Jonathan has talked about with the, uh, the kind of the Christian kinism, um, things that are, that are being said through the PCA and other places. Um, I think growing up that way, um, it, it started me off um, as it does a lot of people on a trajectory to not lean in with other people um, because as you grow up, um, what is around you is your normal and everything else appears to be other. And so if, there's, if, you're, if you're the only one that looks like you in, in a context, then you're more than, you're more than likely going to be predisposed to view that as normal. 
and what we view as normal, we often view as right. And um, that has been my experience going through through my younger years, elementary school age. Uh, my house was very culturally racist, um, never overtly, or what people would say, um, aggressively or hatefully racist, um, but very culturally, a very colloquial sort of racism that dominated a lot of the, the conversations in my house. Uh, my dad would you know, say that we should clean up our room so that it looked like white people live here and, and things like that. Um, he would never say something like that to a person of color. He would never have, have made that leap. But in that colloquial way, um, I, just be, I, I was just socialized through my home experience and I was homeschooled, so that was about all I had. I was socialized to view those people as other and, and kind of worse and never told that overtly, but just through um, the culture of the setting that I was raised in. Um, I spent a lot of time in high school and early in college trying to minimize the problem um, and and explain how the solution was not in the hands of, of white people. I was big on personal responsibility. I was very activist-minded even then. I've never been a person that can, could lay down and just not have an opinion. Um, so uh, in high school and early in college, my passion and my um, my activist kind of mindset was geared toward um, things like reverse racism and, and, and advocating for, you know, white people being one of the more oppressed groups now as society is getting more pluralistic and, and things like that, which things that are, that are, um, are, are deeply harmful ideas uh, that don't sound very harmful. Um, but that was, that was my experience in high school and in my, the early stages of, of academics. Um, trying to write papers and do research projects on those things and, and, and having very little success putting together arguments or finding anything that really supported that that was true. Everything that I found um, pointed to the fact that um, that uh, people that looked like me were still um, winning in American society and people that looked different than me were losing in American society. And I still, uh, moving into my later college years and studying uh, pedagogical sociology and how these things affect schools, as I, as I started to set my sights on becoming a teacher, it became even more apparent that there are big gaps in society where um, people that didn't look like me were, uh, were losing in society um, for whatever reason. And um, that began to stick with me. It was still very academic. It was still in the books. I hadn't really experienced it yet. I still was, I knew some folks, uh, uh, some people of color and and my uh, just being in college, my setting had become less um, monochromatic, but still very much um, dominated by people that looked like me. And um, people that didn't look like me were basically um, forced to assimilate into those spaces and uh, act like we acted to be accepted in, in some of the student organizations I was in and other places. And, and so when I began teaching, that was really it. That was the first time in my life, uh, life I'd ever been a minority in the school where I was teaching. It was um, a very high percentage students of color, very high percentage of um, students in poverty. And I started to see firsthand what it was like um, to care for those people and to see that they had all of the moral uh, currency that I thought that it took to be successful in America. And, they, and those families weren't. They were still poor. They were still... They were still um, losing uh, uh, daily their students and, and the families as well. But but seeing them being um, having that moral currency 
that I thought, you know, um, I had that de facto opinion that those people probably just didn't. That's why they hadn't been successful yet in America. Um, I just, um, that floored me and that broke my heart to see that uh, a lot of what I had thought was, was incorrect and that people not based on their merit or their moral currency were still losing. And that kind of shook my world. And I stayed at that school. I didn't run. I stayed there and I began to, um, I, I began to just um, be uncomfortable all the time with, with the things that I was seeing. And I think that's something that we're not often predisposed to do is just be uncomfortable and deal with that. Um, but I was able to do that and stay in that, in that setting and learn uh, from people. And, and throughout this whole time I'm teaching there, I'm, I'm not doing super well. I'm hurting people. I know that not only students, I'm hurting um, colleagues that, are, that were people of color just from some of the views that I had. And for some reason, those people um, spoke into my life out of love and grace and, and, and helped me see um, the things that I was doing that were being hurtful. And I, I was uh, somehow um, able to let those, those relationships change me. Um, I, I was able to build real critical, substantive relationships with, with these people, not just black people, but as Latino people and, and, and Native Americans as well and, and other people groups. And, and to let those, those experiences kind of reform a lot of my worldview, large parts of my worldview were completely reformed based on those relationships. Um, and and I look back to those relationships and as being transformative in, in my life for those reasons. Um, in, uh, I started transitioning to a new school at this time, and I began um, studying, looking at things I wanted to teach because I was going to be given a little bit more autonomy at my new school. And I started to look at the history of Tulsa, and this was a, kind of another watershed for my, for my path. And, and looking at the history of Tulsa, which I'll talk about um, next week, which is about a lot about um, you know what happened in 1921, uh, but more than that, what really floored me was how I didn't really, it didn't come into my consciousness until 2011. How how that could have happened, how how I could have missed such an event, such a tragedy that that happened um, so close to me, and, and to never hear about it, um, that floored me, and I began to ask myself, what else have I not heard about, and what how, what other other things have we never heard about that because they didn't get written down, and and if this happened here, this has probably happened in other cities, and starting to connect sort of the web of injustice that people that didn't look like me have had to put up with in our society for so long, and, and for it being so close to home with the events of 1921 in Tulsa was... was um, was earth shattering. It was earth shattering for me to see um, to the the gaps that that existed and and to know that they probably existed elsewhere. Throughout this time, I, I I kept teaching, and all of the things that I learned early in my teaching career were constantly reinforced. I met um, you know students that looked like me that I felt were. Um, more morally bankrupt than other students, and they were being successful in life in terms of um, socioeconomically and just being able to walk through life feeling confident about themselves and who they are. And I saw students that didn't look like me that did have the moral currency that I thought equated success in our society, and they were still not successful systemically. And, and that was something that really continued to shake me, and I, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, and I started to connect the dots even more at that time. 
and continuing to teach and then going to grad school and really focusing a lot of my master's work on administration and what it looks like even on a broader uh, systemic level that some of these things are, are doing. And um, actually began uh, at this point having enough of a grasp on some of these things to, to start helping other people um, in, in you know professional development settings and, and adult education settings learn about some of these things and um, it's it's a, it's such a process. I'm I don't think personally that a white person ever gets there, um, quote unquote. Um, I don't think that we ever are able to shrug off the the way that we're socialized in America to to think about um, certain things as normal or good and other things as abnormal and wrong and. And to put people, I think it's it's part of our fallen nature to put people in there, and um, and, and to to sort of try to mem- minimize the history that we see. I know that in in people like um, how how I was uh, for a long time, uh, we're very we're very um, reluctant to look at negative things that have happened in the past and and talk about how they play into the future. We're, we always jump as Americans um, to um, look at the positive things in the history of our country and say that they inform what we do now. We look at our, our um, hard work and faith and ingenuity and individualism and liberty and all of those great things that helped found the country, and we, um, we're, we're not reluctant. To, we're very glad to say, yes, those things are still... American values; those still, those things still are landmark values that Americans share and practice. But we're so reluctant to say, "Well, the 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 dark parts of our history of 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 marginalizing and murdering massive groups of people, you know, up until you know, with impunity, up until you know, the 1970s, really, um, we're we're very reluctant to say that those have bearing." On, on our present. And I think if we're going to accept what's happened in the past, the good things, and say that it informs the present, we also have to look at how our sins of the past have, have, um, have formed the present as a country. And that um, if, if those things were real back then, then they're still informing the fabric of our nation today. And we have to take aggressive steps to um, reformatting our society so that those people that have been losing for so long are not, um, aren't, aren't losing so much anymore. And when I say winning and losing, uh, that's a very loose um, analogy. Um, but basically what winning means is, uh, for me as a white person, I feel like when, when, I, when I wake up, I, I am I'm stepping into a world where I can, I can pretty much walk around comfortably and um, if I didn't look like myself, I don't think I would be able to walk around as comfortably. And our major institutions like education, criminal justice, and business, that those major institutions also statistically really do um, discriminate along, along lines of how people look, which it absolutely, it absolutely shouldn't be that way. And I think um, that, that's a lot of my path is looking at that and failing and trying to do better. And I think our, our denomination has seen this, that our, our history is, is marked that way and is trying, and that we're trying to do better in classes like this or a big step in that right direction because I think we see that there's a biblical imperative for us to, to uh, wrestle with these things and to find ways to do better. Um, 
And that we look to Romans 13, basically it's, 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 where, um, it's where Paul gives a very, clear, um, a very clear directive to the church. Um, and that is, is to say that you should do no harm to your neighbor. He's very, he's very clear about that. He, he puts that up there with you shall not murder, you shall not covet. Basically brings the Ten Commandments in but says love your neighbor as yourself. And, and love does no harm to a neighbor and that actually that love of our neighbors is the fulfillment of the law. And that's a, that's a big one for me. And then in Isaiah, basically the prophet is reaming the Israelites out and chewing them out for being wicked. And he doesn't let them off very easily. He says, basically you need to stop doing everything that's wrong and start doing everything right. (laughs) That's really all he says. And he leaves it very simple and that's very broad. But the very next verse in verse 17 he says, seek justice, defend the oppressed, and take up the cause of the fatherless. And it's like he, he throws all cruelty and all wrongdoing into one category. And he specifically takes time to, to tell the Israelites that if you really want to do what's right, where you should start as people of God is in standing up for and advocating for people that are oppressed, for people that cannot advocate for themselves. And I think that's been so much of my heart currently. And one of the reasons I wanted to take part in this class and one of the reasons I'm constantly trying to do better at this and and constantly looking at these things on a uh, sociopolitical, from a sociopolitical place or a, a historical place or an anthropological place or a sociological place or pedagogical place, all of these different places that we look is that I feel a bib- this biblical imperative, a spiritual imperative, to be that person for for people that are oppressed. That I see, you know, in the classrooms that 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 I'm in, that I see uh, and I hear, and and, and my friends, the the stories that they tell about what it's been like to grow up in in this city, in this country, not looking like me. And I see those things and I feel that need. Um, I I feel the places where I'm bad at that. And I feel the places where I desperately need to, um, to basically to tap into what Isaiah and what Paul are saying. And and, and is that is to, to be on guard for, for my neighbors that cannot defend themselves. And, and, and I feel that. And it's, it's interesting. It's so interesting how this issue, this idea of standing up for the oppressed is very biblical, but in America, it's been politicized to the point that it's like, um, well, to, to say that, to say stand up for the oppressed, you're automatically, you know, forsaking an entire political party or, or an entire section of ideology. And it really doesn't have to be that way. It's really, it's really not as complicated as we make it. Um, because we, we know (laughs) as Christians, we know what it's like to be oppressed by our sin and to be stood up for and liberated by, by Christ and his death. And I think there is a social implication there. Obviously these verses and others point to, there is a social implication that it's not just a spiritual oppression that we're standing up against, but it's a physical and social oppression that, that existed. And we have this, this biblical imperative. And so next week I, I'm really going to talk about um, some of the bullet points of that time in Tulsa in 1921 and some of the things that happened in my, in my path there. And also look at, at um, how, how things like that play into what they call a cycle of socialization, which has people predispo- predisposed before they're even born to either lean away or lean in um, with people on across lines of difference and, and what that looks like in the church.